Welcome to episode 27 of the Muck Podcast, where we discuss the dark and sometimes weird true stories in American politics. I'm Tina Jaramillo. And I'm Hillary Doherty. Hillary. Hi. Hi. <laughs> How are you? How was your week? Um, oh my God. I, 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 no, no good. No good. And every um. time I feel like I put out one fire, then like another fire popped up. You know what I mean? It just never seems to be ending. And I don't know what is the deal. I just want a break. And so yesterday I was, I was like staring out my back window and um, I saw an iguana by the pool and I was like, look at that fucking iguana. Like he's having the time of his life. He's like sunbathing no and I never <laughs> go in the pool. So I put my bathing suit on and you I got in the pool because my husband and my son weren't here. My daughter was playing Minecraft or some shit on her tablet and I was in that pool by myself for an hour. It was so nice. And there was a lizard, like one of those curly tail lizards. Yes. Was by the pool. And I was looking at him. I go, I know what you guys are up to out here. Like, yeah. this is really <laughs> relaxing. This is nice. So then oh. um, I went to my mom's house last night. And on my way home, I went to Target and got um, a raft. Oh, so you just now lay in the pool? I am going to make this a thing. I love it. But I think part of it was that there was no one in there with me because, you know, the kids want you to hold them or throw them around or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to be like, just let mommy lay here for a little bit and pretend I'm like floating yeah. down a river, never coming home. Yeah. Pool is nice. We don't have a pool. Girl, please. This heat down here. Oh, my God. Yeah. I took, but I'll do like the long bath. Yeah. So oh, that's yeah, what that's I nice. did yesterday. Nice. Yes. It was very nice. Hmm. So um, <laughs> how was your week? Did anything else happen? Anything good? Nothing. Yeah. It's the same uh, quarantine yeah. life. Which is good because I have to tell you, I, the numbers in Florida have been spiking. Yeah. Yesterday, I think it was up now over 4,000. Yeah. And I was reading about Trump having that, that rally in Tulsa or something, and um, which again, of course, this is two weeks later, folks, so uh, be aware of that. But um, he said, oh, it said that they had a record number of cases in Tulsa. It was like yes. 300 or something. And I was like, wow, that's nice. We have over 4,000 yes. um, in one day in South in, in Florida, the state of Florida. Well, I was hearing that Florida may be the new epicenter. It may be yeah. the new New York. That doesn't, it does not surprise me. So, so no, I will be in quarantine for until uh, may probably next summer. Oh, the beach will be there. The water parks will be there. Yes. The fucking Disney will be there in a year. When everybody's uh, got their shit together, but the photographs of people on the beaches with no masks, <clears throat> I feel bad for like lifeguards and people who have to work on these beaches. Yes. Thank God they're like six feet off the ground and can like look down at these morons, but like, what are you doing? I, I And I understand that you want to get out of the house, but as soon as somebody like plops their beach towel next to you, what do you do? Yeah. You get up and you leave, leave, right? Like yeah. you don't stay there. Yeah, No. And there are so many places, you know, um, my family and I, we did like a nature trail mm -hmm. um, last week mm -hmm. and it was pretty empty where we were, but there were still rules. Like when you walked up one, uh, like the little museum thing that they have where you can, or the information center was closed. Right. But they said you could go on the trails and if anyone was within six feet of you, you had to put your mask on. So you didn't have to wear it the entire time, but if someone was near you, you had to put it on. Yeah. So you had to have a mask. And most people followed it, but there were people that showed up that didn't have the masks. And then there was also a big barricade in front of one of the trails that said, you know, walking only, no bikes, no skateboards, no scooters, no right. this. And then th th these guys are coming by on their bikes. 
with no masks. And I'm like, oh, wonder, can't you follow a rule? But the thing that I don't understand the most about the not wearing the mask is why is this now a political issue? We're talking about the health of, of you, yourself, and like other people. Why why are you making it political? It's not political. Well, they don't they don't believe it. It's just shocking to me. I have a relative that does not uh, believe it. And in fact, he is in a state where the numbers are very contained. Mm-hmm. And he was complaining about the governor. But and the reason it's contained and is that's because what that I person said. was doing their yes, job. I said, that's why the numbers are low. But I think it's like this reversal of, well, the numbers are low. Why, why aren't we doing what we want? You know, it, and it I comes, said, and I'm in a state where the governor said, yeah. do what you want. And now look at our numbers. We're right. at 4,000 a day. And that's what I think <laughs> where that lack of leadership all the way at the top is a problem. When you have a, a president and an administration who just tells people that they basically, the, the biggest mistake they made was, of course, not recognizing it from the beginning as a problem but also allowing governors to, to yes. run their states the way well, they wanted to. there was to. no plan. There was no plan. And there to be no honest plan. with you, if it was top down and every state had to do the same thing, whether your numbers were high or low, because there are states where it's like right. the population's nothing like it is in Florida or whatever. But if you had had those rules from the top down right. and if said there was every plan, state has to do this. Of course. Like when your state reaches X, yeah. like he should have met, hey, governors, when your state reaches X or your count, really it should have been per county. Yeah. When your county reaches X, this is what goes into play. Right. And then when it reaches the next stage, this is what you do. And then the governors could have conveyed that to all of the county leaders and then they could have right informed the city. But it can't be by state. You know, I you mean, can't that's do how that. it, because then because the problem is, is then who's running that state? And if your yeah. governor doesn't think that this is a problem and think numbers if are your made up, governor then, wants to kiss the president's behind like ours does mm-hmm. but it's and if he's not if he doesn't understand the numbers and doesn't understand yeah. the information he's putting so many people's lives at risk and so how are you letting this person be in charge of millions of people it's shocking well, we also have a president who at that Tulsa rally um just continued with his race baiting and referred to the virus as kung flu so oh my god you know this is what we're dealing with we're dealing with a president who is dismissive about the virus who says we have too much testing going on um and that's why the numbers are high because we test too much well he's a moron the guy's an idiot well that's okay Okay. listen all i know is that when i went to target there was a huge banner on the outside of the building and it said it was in English and it was in Spanish. And it said, per ordinances by Broward County, you have to wear a mask to enter this building or whatever. And I was like, fucking A. I wanted to take a picture of it and say, I am so glad that I live in this county where yeah. they are saying, you can't come in here. Like, those are the places I'll go. I'll go right. inside of a Publix with my mask on. I'll go inside a Target with my mask on. That people, these, these businesses that are demanding, like, you can't come in unless... Right. Fuck. Yes. Although yes, yes, I yes. was in a Publix um, recently and there was someone walking around without the mask, even though the signs on the door and everyone well, they else throw was them wearing, out. they should throw them out and they, he, and also, he was shopping. Also a little word of advice, put the mask over your nose. If I see oh one more God. fucking idiot with the mask over their mouth and not on their nose, I'm like, you're, you're not even doing anything. I know. It's so funny. Okay, so, hey, I have a quick update. So our last episode, I covered the story of Tyra Hunter and talking about how important it was that LGBTQ community has health coverage because the HSS had just did this ruling yes. on Friday, I think it was June 12th, saying that um, that, that workplaces could discriminate. The word sex didn't mean um, uh, LGBTQ. 
Right. With the, we did we, that happened on a Friday. We recorded on Sunday, <laughs> like less than twenty four hours later, the Supreme Court uh, ruled in a case, a sex discrimination case. Um, that included LGBTQ folks, including um, Amy Stevens, which was the first case that the L- the Supreme Court ever heard on a transgender issue, which is amazing. Yes, um, it's just unfortunate Amy St- Stevens had passed away, I think, last year, so she wasn't even here for the ruling. But her case is a landmark case, and her name will forever be known in the United yeah. States for this case. But um, so we recorded the case on Sunday. On Monday, this ruling came, and one of the things I was saying in the story is the only way this is going to go away is if you know one the Supreme Court rules in this favor and they're hearing cases right now or like Trump's still in office but we have to get the there was all these like things we had to hit but the Supreme Court did it so I am so excited you and I know the story when you all heard it was like a little dated but (laughs) because it's a week later but I'm so excited that um I'm basically Ruth Bader Ginsburg that's all I have to say yes thank Uh, God that's all I know is that I I was like come on Supreme Court yeah that's we got to protect her at all costs. <laughs> yes. And I wanted to read this one quote from the opinion that Neil Gorsuch uh, wrote the opinion on the piece uh, on the law. He said, quote, there is simply no escaping the role intent plays here. Just as sex is necessary, necessarily a but for cause when an employer discriminates against homosexual or transgender employees, an employer who discriminates on these grounds inescapably, inescapably intends to rely on sex in its decision making. End quote. So it's very clear. Right. He's saying that if you're fired for this reason, it's because of this. That's the sex part that they're referring right. to in in the in the decision. So I'm I'm so pleased. And uh, they also came out for DACA yes. um, a couple days later. Oh my god! Again with a a, <sighs> a couple of really conservative judges going on the side of the Dreamers. So that's Thank amazing. Thank you. Thank um, you. But I think we're going to hear at least a couple more uh, decisions coming out of Supreme Court. So but, like, I mean, it it it. it makes me happy that those judges did the right thing here's the thing i don't know if you've ever listened to interviews with ruth bader ginsburg but judges like on this level are so dry like milk toast i don't know if that's right but like really really super dry like um it's it's, just it's very black and white yes there's no cut it's cut and dry it's like if this is what the law reads and this is what it means there's no like weird interpretation like no so in these kinds of cases like they're how they feel personally as a conservative really doesn't come into it. It's about what the law reads, how right. I read the law, how I I'm seeing it. So we should be okay on that. I think. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I know, but there, there will be other issues that come up and we're not going to be happy about them, but at least this, this last week there was so two. as long as uh Roe v. Wade keeps. Yeah. yeah. Well, forget that. <sighs> we're, we're done. That's okay, over. I know. Okay. So I am first and I am going to talk about, Judge Gary Little. Oh. Okay. Um, Gary Little was born in Seattle, the son of a a truck driver, Sterling Little, who died in August 1947 after hanging himself in a jail cell in the King County Courthouse where he was being held on a burglary charge. Gary's mother worked as a uh, sonographer while he and his sister were raised by their grandmother. Little was described as a driven and able student, graduated from Lincoln High School, and earned a scholarship to Harvard University. He graduated from Harvard and went on to earn a Juris Doctor uh, degree from the University of Washington School of Law. So while a student at the University of Washington, he immersed himself in democratic politics and began to develop a circle of influential friends. Beginning in in the 1960s, Little worked as an assistant attorney general assigned to the University of Washington. Okay. Um, during this time, he also served as a volunteer counselor in the Seattle Juvenile Court, 
and as a part-time teacher at the prestigious Lakeside School from 1968 to 1972. So he's very nicely surrounding himself with young people. Oh, God. Um, Okay, so in 1970, apparently Gary Little began having sex with Lakeside boys. Oh, no. Students. Little surrounded himself with a more mundane crowd of mostly rich kids. From these, he recruited about half a dozen to become, quote, Gary's boys. As the click that spent... As the clique that spent time at Little Sinclair Island Summer Home began what? known around school. Yeah. So he had this, yeah, he had a home like on this island in, in Washington where oh, he no. would have them come out there. Most of Gary's boys were never involved with him sexually. For them, Little was a dynamic and often very helpful mentor. But it was from this group that he selected his marks, mostly white male boys with slender builds, fair hair, and blue eyes. The ones he took to bed also tended to be <gasps> neglected or emotionally abused sons of some of Seattle's most powerful families. Oh, my God. Um, they were emotionally deprived, may, and that may have uh, made them easier victims, but um, they also came from powerful families, which may have also been instrumental in protecting Little from public exposure, right? Oh, because so those like, families don't want all that's this. That's right. They just want to like you know, just pull this kid away from him, and then and we don't want to embarrass ourselves. Oh, my right? God. Despite the considerable damage he did to some Lakeside students, none of the families that told the school administration that Little was raping <gasps> students, which is what it was. Let's be My honest. My God. Yeah. And th- this is like high school or middle yes, high school high boys. School. So, uh, so many people knew or certainly had ser- uh, serious suspicions, but Gary Little skated forward under benign silence. By 1973, Lakeside was beginning to have its own doubts about Little, so the actual school. Discussions among faculty members were, quote, about L- Gary Little messing around with with the kids, end quote. That was Little's last year at Lakeside. So all these teachers are even talking about it. Could yes. you imagine? And nobody's like bringing it up to anybody. Oh, well, um, they're probably, teachers hear a lot. They know what's going on with the kids because kids are always talking. Right. And so they're really, they, they have their pulse on like what's going on. Mm-hmm. So they probably maybe were getting wind or overhearing things right. and not, you know, Maybe it wasn't 100% confirmed, but they probably had some ideas. Mm. Ugh. But because the school had never received any specific allegations of impropriety on Little's part, and because many parents were honestly enthusiastic about the attention their boys had received from Little, <gasps> probably not the sexual right. part, they probably didn't know about that, but the school gave Little a good recommendation, enabling him to become, of all things, the attorney for the Seattle public school system. <gasps> He was later credited with, um, at that time, with engineering the district's uh, sweeping desegregation program. So he was doing all of these good so things. He's doing good work, but you know, then, as this in, oh. in this role. So Little was elected to the King County Superior Court in 1980. Several uh, former Lakeside students connected or contacted Dan Coughlin, the Seattle Post Intelligencer's courthouse reporter. So that's one of the papers there in Seattle. They said that Little had a pattern of sexually exploiting people under his authority, and they feared for the youngsters who might come before him in court. So these are the kids now grown up and saying, whoa, 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 we can't. Yes. Yep. That Um, takes courage. Yeah. Yeah. Coughlin pursued the lead, but because the alleged victims were still unwilling to go public, he concluded he did not have a story and the issue never arose. Within two years of taking office, Little had begun to provoke the same sort of questions in the legal community that had previously concerned Lakeside and the Seattle public school system, and once more the system prevailed over public exposure. Oh complaints, by lawyers, yeah, 
Complaints by lawyers prompted the Office of the King County Prosecutor to prepare a 107-page report detailing irregularities in the sentences Judge Little handed out to physically favored young men. So they all looked like this slender, blonde hair, blue-eyed kind of kid. Oh, gosh. In the fall of 1981, despite Little's success in pressuring at least one witness to give false testimony, the prosecutor's office notified the state's commission on judicial conduct that it would soon be filing a complaint against Little. So this commission of judicial, on judicial conduct, they have one in every state. Like, I think Florida was the last of 50 states to actually do it. Of course. But that's where you go and complain <laughs> about a judge. And you say these things are happening. Right, because there has to be some oversight. Yes, and there it's it's supposed to be made up of um, lawyers, but also people who work in, um, I don't want to say business, but like people who aren't involved in the law. So like someone who's also coming in and saying like, so there's no cover up, right? right. Like if you're a lawyer and you know this person, they all these guys know each other, whatever. Right. They're supposed to be able to say and have some sort of oversight, have it objective, so yes. other people to keep it an objective yes. oversight and so committee. So they went, they they get, they let them know that we're sending you this report on this guy. So two days before the complaint arrived, however, the state commission essentially threw it out by adopting rules prohibiting consideration of any evidence against a judge prior to its creation in 1980. So that commission just became a thing in Washington in 1980. Oh, so now they, but they can't go back. Right. So they're saying anything that happens. Yeah. This decision was championed by William Baker, an Everett lawyer and a personal friend of Little's who later served as chairman of the state commission. Oh, Nice. So they know this thing's coming. Yes. They gave them a heads up saying we're sending this report and they're like, okay, what are we going to do? And then they find this loophole. Yep. Um, all investigations by the state commission on judicial conduct were originally supposed to be public, but the commission circumvented the legislature's intent by inserting an intermediary stage of investigation prior to public hearings. So <laughs> the legislature is the one who creates the, the commission right. and puts the people on it. And it's supposed and to say, be transparent. Here are your rules. Yeah. Right. And they're like, well... We're, We're going to investigate the investigation okay. privately first, <laughs> and then we'll let you know what, what the what we're going to give to the public. Oh, Lord. All because of this one guy. Yeah. Was, so are these guys, like, involved with him? Who, I mean, listen. You know? That's what I sharing, started thinking. Sharing. Yeah. He, where he has these boys, and they're all involved. Yeah. Like an and at that point, thing. if you start covering it up, you're, you're as bad as he is. Yeah. You've allowed this behavior to continue. So and why are you so bent on protecting him? That's the thing. Right. So this is how the commission handled the King County prosecutor's 1981 complaint. They basically put it on the shelf, right? Little was privately admonished for his conduct in three juvenile cases, but the public was never informed of the complaint or its resolution. So the public had no idea. They just privately told him to to knock it off, right? (laughs) Little, meanwhile, continued to force defendants who came before him into sexual acts. One was David Curran, who appeared before Judge Little on a variety of petty theft accounts, or petty theft counts, Thin, blonde, and then 16 years old, Curran fit the profile of, to the T of one of Gary's boys. Little essentially gave Curran a heavy sentence and then suspended it at, at his own discretion, <gasps> right? So in, the atmos- in this atmosphere, Little had no trouble co- coercing sexual favors from Curran in exchange for a reduced sentence. Oh, and then no. Curran, quote, said, there, was, there wasn't a question in my mind that I could refuse because of the fear he could do something to me. Right. The fact of me being on probation, it was enough. He always had something on me. End oh, quote. my God. So it reminds me so much of the stories you've told about oh the judges with the women yes. and how they felt like they had no choice because right. this, well, he's the a power. Kid and yeah. it's like he's probably threatening him with jail and yeah. who knows what. And he's, yes. Oh. Um, in 1984, after Little had dropped 
Curran, so stopped hanging out with him. Um, he probably got too old. Yeah, Curran and Jerry Jerry Chun, another youth who had been abused by Little, met at the Conquest Center, a drug and alcohol treatment center outside Seattle. There, both told counselors about their experiences with Judge Little. Both later said they were advised to keep quiet. <gasps> Although the State Commission on Judicial Conduct continued to receive complaints about Judge Little, it did not think them serious enough to keep accurate or detailed accounts. Oh, my God. In 1985, however, a juvenile defendant listed Little's place as his home in court records. The presiding judge of the King County Superior Court removed Little from hearing all juvenile cases, assigning him instead to a complex civil litigation. Is there probably like, why is this kid using your address? Could you imagine? Oh, my God. So... Here we go. When the press hears this, that Little was removed from hearing juvenile cases. So these are rumors that everybody kind of knows about. So now they're like, why? Yeah. Let's dig in. So this is in 1985. They began to re-examine the file, all the stuff they know about him, right? The Seattle Times Times reporter Peyton Whitley wrote several stories about official investigations of -of out-of-court contacts between Little and male juvenile offenders. Um, Then, just as Whitley thought the story was really beginning to get hot... He was pulled off and assigned to a cover other subjects. At, at about the same time, King TV in, or KING TV in Seattle had taped interviews with several of Little's victims who also provided the station with sworn affidavits supporting their statements. Wow. Reporter John Wilson prepared a thorough, hard-hitting piece on Little's, Little's sexual abuse of teenagers at Lakeside 15 years before, but the segment never aired. Wilson's superiors decided it was, quote, relatively older news. But it was within the same yes. year that Little had been removed from any juvenile cases. Yes, and they're going to say, here's a pattern. This guy's yeah. a predator. And the, and the people there said no. So the press, the <laughs> newspaper people are, <clears throat> excuse me, are getting rid of it. The TV people are getting rid of it. So ha- this guy wields a lot of power. Like, obviously, they're scared of him, right? Um, it wasn't for another three years in 1988, that the swirling rumors were finally going to make it to the front page of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. Investigative reporter Duff Wilson started an investigation into all of the rumors around surrounding Gary Little. He wrote an article that covered the molestation and rape of young boys from the Lakeside School to the courtroom and the cover-up by the Judicial Committee and the various news organizations. Ooh. The story was, was to be printed on the front page of, Fri- of Friday's paper, August 19th, 1988. Judge Gary Little was aware that the story was coming out. He had already said, all right, I'm not going to run for re-election, and I will retire quietly and move to California. Just oh. like to get them to oh, not me, put the story out. Let me just disappear. Yeah. So this so is an effort. So he could go do his little antics elsewhere. Yeah. So he wanted to be like, oh, this didn't yeah. happen. Like, listen, all right, all right, all right, I'll just leave, right? So the night before um, the paper was to come out, uh, Judge Gary Little shot himself <gasps> In the King County Courthouse, just three stories above where his father had hung himself 41 <gasps> years earlier. Oh, my God. Is that creepy or what? Yes, I got totally, goosebumps. Totally creepy. So this is what was, uh, he left a suicide note on a bench next to him. He did it like in a oh hallway. Oh, my God. Yeah, and he left a suicide note. And this is what was in the suicide note. This is what it says. I've chosen to take my life. It's an appropriate end to the present situation. I had hoped that my decision to withdraw from the election and leave public public life would have closed the matter. Apparently, these steps are not satisfactory to those who feel more is required. So be it. Of course, more is required. Could you imagine? Well, I said I would leave. Yeah. Don't you? Isn't that enough for you? I mean, you know, as if he's not doesn't have to be prosecuted and held accountable right. in the court for what he's done to what he's ruined these boys lives my god oh but my how about god. this more than 600 people attended his funeral what not only that 
Um, with with the knowledge that he had committed these acts. Yes, and uh, a lot of them were like, "This was wrong that the press hounded him for so long." Yeah, that, he's guilty. Were, yes. He's guilty. Yes. Nope. And with suicide, you know, it's a terrible thing for anyone. It's not. I'm not advocating that this person should have committed suicide, but he should be held accountable for his actions. So initial public reaction to news of Little's death focused on the Seattle Post Intelligencer and the belief it had hounded the judge, though the confidential operation of the state's Commission on Judicial Conduct and the suppression of its 1981 report also quickly came under scrutiny. Um, Later, concern was expressed that indicators of possible wrongdoing by Little had been covered up by Seattle's historically clustered social and political elite, right? Like they... Totally did this on purpose and people were outraged that this group would had like it basically exposed these people who had covered up these crimes, even some that even included their children, you know. So the investigative reports by Duff Wilson led to a constitutional amendment giving Washington state a very open process for the investigation and discipline of judges. So at least those executive executive, uh, sorry, right. Those investigative report, uh, you know, articles actually led to to a change in the state. Yes. Yes. So that's the story of Gary Little. That is just wild that it mm. went on for so long. And it reminds me, of course, because it's coming from like out of the 60s, 70s into the 80s of the priests. Yes. Because it was sort of the same thing where it just kept getting pushed under, pushed under, and nobody wanted to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, and then it wasn't until decades later that all of that stuff started coming You're out. You're right. That's exactly what it was like. Oh, I know. All right, well, I have a story to tell today, <laughs> and this is a recent, relatively recent, uh, in the mid-2000s uh, here, and it's the story of former Nevada House Representative Stephen J. Brooks. Mm. So a lot of my sources are coming from uh, local newspapers, the Las Vegas Review Journal, LA Times, uh, the Las Vegas Sun, um, and so on. I have a HuffPost article too, uh, New York Times, etc. And you guys can all see that in our sources. So Stephen Brooks served as a house rep beginning in 2011 for District 19 in Nevada. And then uh, in 2013, he earned a seat for District 17. And when Brooks gets passed over, For a committee position, he reacts in an unimaginable way, and his political future is a mucked up but good. Oh, my gosh. This story is just, it's it's a little wild. (laughs) It's a little wild. So the story takes place in Clark County, Nevada, which is home to the largest city in Nevada, Las Vegas. Nice. And both, both of those districts are part of Clark County, and they're right next to each other, um, very near um, Las Vegas. And because of its size, Clark County has a lot of pull in statewide elections. It tends to lean more Democratic on the federal level. So Dems tend to lean heavily on that area of the state Mm. because they want to try to push a heavy voter turnout to try to swing some uh, state seats. So before I go into details about what lands him into trouble, I want to offer a little bit of background into Brooks's political life. So prior to running for office, Brooks was a teacher in Clark County Mm. and he saw himself, according to a 2010 Las Vegas Review Journal 
a candidate questionnaire as a, quote, fiscal conservative and a liberal Democrat. Hmm. Okay. And he believed in transparency. And in his first capacity as a House rep, he helped pass a green energy bill. And he was a member of the Transportation Judiciary and also Health and Human Services Committee. He provided work opportunities in state-funded public work projects. He was really involved in the community. He was um, involved with the Las Vegas Urban League. He served on the Community Land Trust Board, the Hispanic Art Museum Board, the Community Partners for Better Health, and he helped create a minority health department. So he did a lot of yeah, things, things during his uh, tenure. But what happens is in January of 2013, Brooks allegedly threatened Marilyn Kirkpatrick, the Assembly Speaker of the House and a fellow Democrat like Brooks, and according to David McGrath Schwartz's Las Vegas Sun newspaper, Brooks allegedly had a loaded weapon, a 357 Magnum in a shoebox in his car with 41 rounds of ammo when he was arrested for the threat. And that's it's pretty scary. So he Yeah, especially it's not like locked up, it's in a shoebox. Someone can yeah. break in your car and, and steal that thing. Right. So he <laughs> was making these threats um towards this the, this fellow house rep, the speaker. And she she got very frightened. And so when the threat was, you know, had escalated and they reported it, when they pulled him over, they find this weapon because he was going around saying, like, I'm going to find her and I'm going to kill her. So she was afraid like Holy he was shit. driving around town, like trying to find her. And then they find this gun. So it kind of looks like he's yes. possibly trying to right. um, do more than just threaten her. And so she's really scared for her life, which is, of course, understandable. So why did he threaten her? Like, what led this guy to want to kill yeah. this person? So according to Schwartz, sources said that he wanted a particular committee assignment from Kirkpatrick. Specifically, he wanted to be the chair of the Assembly Ways and Means Committee that oversees the governor's proposed budget. And Kirkpatrick gave it to someone else. And he God. was very upset about it. Oh, boy. And so according to the Huffington Post, Brooks commented on his arrest to the Las Vegas Review-Journal stating, if Kirkpatrick comes to kill me again, I have an armed guard. No one is going to touch me again. I'm safe. Wait a minute. He said that? That's what he said. So, so he thinks that someone, that this person is trying to come and kill him? Yes. So as we're going to see, this is a really sad story because there's something uh -oh. wrong. Yeah. With this, he's it's experiencing like a mental health yeah. breakdown here. Oh, God. And um, after another troubling incident, he, in fact, ends up being put under psychiatric evaluation. Mm. So things start spiraling from there. So that was in January, right, that this threat happens and he gets pulled over and arrested. And according to a John Galona's L.A. Times article in February, Brooks tried to purchase a gun. And Stephen Pratt of the Times added that Brooks also attempted to purchase night vision goggles and a bulletproof vest. But the store that he was trying to get all this stuff, they were like, no, we're not going to sell you these items. They denied his purchase. So he was being Because he followed. was acting a little bit wacky? Yeah. Oh, and he God. was being followed at the time by investigators. That same month, according to Galona, Brooks was also removed from a local restaurant for unspecified reasons. And Jeff Dornan of the Nevada Appeal reported that there was also an incident where Brooks showed up to a relative's house with a sword. So Benjamin Spillman and Antonio Planis of the LA, I'm sorry, of the Las Vegas Review Journal note that a police spokesperson said, look, 
the sword was in the home. It was handed over peacefully, you know, so it wasn't like he was out there brandishing the sword. Some people said he did like arrive with it, but the spokesperson said it was in the house. It was turned over like there was no. So did all of these things start happening after he was denied this committee or was this all like leading up to that? Like, is that the last thing that kind of broke him? I wonder. No, no. So that happened in January and then February. All this, this other stuff starts happening. This, all this other stuff starts happening. Okay. But there are incidents prior to that that okay. show that there might have been some instability. Yeah, it was starting. Right. So in March of 2013, the assembly votes to expel Brooks due to his erratic behavior. And he ends up being the first assemblyman to ever be expelled from the seat. Wow. And in 1867, there was another guy that they attempted to expel, but like it ne- the votes never went through. But there was like, we're going to try to expel this guy, but it never happened. But with Brooks, they, they pushed it through, they voted, and he was out. So according to Dornan's Nevada Appeal article, Brooks was pissed. Uh, he uh, cited a phone interview with the Associated Press where uh, that notes Brooks's response, and he says, how dare they? I've been convicted of nothing. He then accused opponents of trying to kill him. Yes, oh. tried to kill me. I'm an open book. They won't let me testify at the Grant Sawyer building, and they sent 100 police officers to arrest me. Dornan also reported that the House Majority Floor Leader William Horn noted that the documentation and evidence against Brooks, quote, paints a picture of a man who is volatile, prone to angry outbursts, and potentially dangerous. So they had started collecting all of this evidence mm-hmm. of all you know, anytime Brooks was acting out of line or anything. So they had like, you know, a whole binder full of (laughs) papers on this guy. Right. So, um, according to a CBS news article on the expulsion, the documents suggested that Brooks failed to show up to meetings. Um, one thing that he did as well that they noted was when all of this was happening, he called for like a conference with the media. So the media shows up and then he no showed like, so Mm -hmm. he's like, I'm going to come talk about this come up to here at this time the press shows up and then there's no brooks so um there was that and then they also point to and and we'll have a picture on our instagram but he also did this pose where he he posed shirtless for a newspaper as a show of his innocence so he's shirtless and he's got his arms outstretched oh he's like yeah this, you know like, like this martyr kind of, yeah. yeah kind of way oh that's so sad yeah it's 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 a, it's, it is really sad. So, um, now this is what happens. So okay. he gets expelled mm-hmm. and Glona notes that just hours after his expulsion from office, Brooks engages in a high speed chase mm. in San Bernardino, California. Oh my gosh. So they're in Nevada, but Nevada and San Bernardino, like it's not it's like not this, it's not far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent some time out in San Bernardino back in the day. You did? I did. Drum circle? Um, there was <laughs> definitely some drum circle stuff happening. <laughs> we go down to Venice Beach. Yeah. Um, according to Little Gleona and Tovin Lappin's uh, articles, the chase is wild. So according to Lappin, police get called by a tow truck driver. And the tow truck driver says, look, I've, I've pulled this guy called me. He's got a flat tire and he won't give me his ID and he won't pay me. You know, like he won't give me any money and he's a little agitated. So police show up and the guy with the flat tire is Brooks. Okay. And so instead of like dealing with the cops, he jumps in the car with the flat tire and just 
books it down oh the God. road. And he's going, How like, far could he possibly get? Well, he went 80 miles per hour. <laughs> yeah. And he's in and out of trust. So he's putting people at risk. He's in this high-speed chase. that The tire and it's sparking. Yes, you know, of course. It's, like it's this, the rim. It's this crazy thing. And he starts throwing things out of the window at the police car behind him. He's just throwing anything he can. One of the things he throws is, is a gun oh. out the window, too. So, um Finally, they put a spike strip down okay, to good. try to stop him, and it does, and he still refuses to comply, so they send the police dog at him, and he he attacks and chokes the police dog with a wrench. What yes. the fuck? And then finally, they have to tase him, so it was like this- Wow. Yeah. I mean, he, he, was, he was out of control. Yeah. So the charges, so he ends up with charges in California, mm-hmm. and he has the charges in Nevada. So he's charged with resisting an officer in California, felony evading, and assault on a police animal with the dog because he tried to choke, yes. and, and he, um, they the dog had, officers. like, lacerations and everything. Holy he was beating shit. the dog. And then, but again, you know, if a dog is attacking, like, I can understand, like, you want to get the dog off. Yeah, him, but, the, but if a dog is coming at you, it's yeah. supposed to scare you to be like, okay, 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 yeah, right. this yeah. guy, no, it <laughs> no. did not scare him at all. No. Um, and then the charges in Nevada, he was charged with felony possession of a firearm by a prohibited person, which is right, because of the- they found him with that gun. Mm-hmm. So the aftermath. So in California, he was sentenced to two years and eight months, but it was offset by the 485 days he had already spent in jail. So he was in jail awaiting trial and they had revoked the bond and all of this. So he sat in jail waiting for this trial to come up. So they said, okay, you're sentenced to this, but we're going to offset it for 485 days that you spent in jail. And then they did a credit for 485 days for good behavior. Oh my. So he doesn't, So he's out. Like, so he's out. So he's sat there while he awaited trial and then that's what happened there. And then in Nevada, he received a one to three year suspended sentence and three years probation. Oh, my God. Can so, you say white guy? Yeah, this he's is not. outrageous. Yeah, no. Oh, he's, he's not? not. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Wait, why? So, so then what's with these low sentences? I mean, you really think that this is well, okay with get these low sentences? I think... I, I have I, a bias against white people. I know. I just, you just well, heard my bias against white people. <laughs> I think that the sentences are, you know, does he... Because he had the mental health That's part? what I think. Like, okay. should he be put in jail? Like, clearly he's having some sort of mental break. And is jail the right place? Or does he need right, treatment? So, but, like, if you give him the short sentence and he gets out, then what? Then are you even really helping him? Right. Um, I don't know what was part of the probation for the Nevada. Yeah. But... Some points of interest, um, he ends up having a replacement, this Tyrone Thompson, who's been doing a really great job um, and took well to the position, and he's served on all these committees, and so they appointed this other person. There wasn't an election because they needed to fill it, Um, so that happened. In August of 2014, Brooks gets arrested again. Mm -mm. According to Annalise Little's Las Vegas Review-Journal article, Brooks was held for domestic battery charges assault on a protected person and resisting arrest with a firearm. So I saw this a couple times, assault on a protected person. And I was like, I don't understand what that means. Like, cause he fought a cop maybe. Right. Um, so I looked it up in Nevada and if you assault a protected person, it's more, your, your punishment is more severe than if you just like attack Johnny Q public. Right. right? So protected persons in Nevada are police officers, firefighters, first responders, 
sporting officials at sporting events like referees, correctional officers, healthcare workers, judges, state officials, taxi drivers, public transit operators, and school employees. Whoa. So those are all considered the protected class. And so if anyone attacks anyone in any of those fields, they would get a harsher Hmm. sentencing or charge. I like that. Yeah. So according to Ken Ritter's Nevada Appeal article, he was sentenced um, for that to three years probation. Six months of that had to be under intensive supervision so that Brooks could receive mental health treatment and make sure that he takes his meds and remains sober. So he was dealing with addiction. He was dealing with not taking his meds. And so that's the thing. I think with someone like this, throwing him in jail, what is it going to do? You know, he's someone that he needs a different kind of care to understand what's going on. And that's the thing that was sort of sad that he gets expelled. And some people, there were a couple of people that voted against the expulsion saying, you know, he's got all this stuff going on. But then at the same time, they were like, but he's not fit to serve. To serve. Yeah. And so um, just last year, uh, 2019, Brooks was arrested again. Mm. According to a News 3 Las Vegas article, Las Vegas police arrested him threatening to kill police officers after getting into a fight at a local convenience store. Allegedly, Brooks insulted someone at the store, and that led to the altercation. When officers caught up with Brooks, he allegedly told officers that he was going to soon be reinstated in his former elected position oh, and that no. politicians were not allowed to be arrested. Oh, my God. He, he This guy's still in the same place yes. in his head. Yes. And even that happened in one of the earlier arrests saying, like, no, I'm an elected official. Like, you can't search my house. You can't search my car. Like, he had this idea that. Oh, God, help me. He was protected somehow. Yes. And you're not, just because you're an elected official doesn't mean you get a pass. No. You know. <laughs> we know that. We've said, what episode number is this? <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. Um, the other thing he did um, during that arrest is he said that he was going to get a gun and find the officer the next day just to say hi. What so, in the fuck? So clearly he's threatening. Yes, this is last year. This is last year. Girl, no. And uh, Brooks said that he would green light the officer, which means that either Brooks or someone else would kill the officer. Like when you say, hey, I'm going to green light somebody, that's what they mean. And then in the same article, he told another officer he would go to his home and fuck his wife and daughter. <gasps> that's what he said. So like, you know, he's, again, he's uh, a little out of control. So- he faced the following charges, and that was assaulting a protected person, two counts intimidating a public officer, disorderly conduct. And, you know, I, I know that he had to be arrested for that, and he faces these charges. But with me, with this story, the thing that just kept coming up is how do we fix this mm. in terms of when clearly he's saying things that are not rational, he's out of control. Um, he, he have, he's suffering his emotional and mental health are suffering. So how, how do we deal with that in the penal system? You know, like again, putting someone in jail, isn't going to solve this problem. Right. And it isn't going to give him the help that he needs. And I don't know where the line is drawn with acts of violence Mm -hmm. and where you house somebody. I don't, you know? Yeah. Because they're not going to get better in jail. They're not going to get better in jail. And what they did is just release him out into the public and yeah, this again, is like three and again, different and again. Yeah, he's yeah. gone back to doing the same thing. He's obviously not better. Right. But if someone isn't taking their medication. Right. Like, listen, we, can, we can't be cycle. a nanny. It's like that yeah. nanny state where we're supposed to like, we can't hold his hand through everything. But at the right. same time, 
you know, eventually this is not, I mean, if this just happened last year, it's going to happen again. Like it's going to end badly. Right. And I think that's the issue sometimes with certain mental health disorders Mm -hmm. is that sometimes people will take their medication, then they feel better. And they're like, I don't need the medication, but it's the medication that was helping them. Right. And so then it's this cycle of being on your meds, being off your meds. And I don't know. So it was an interesting story because I was like, oh my God, there's a high speed chase. Like there's all of these wild elements. But then at the end of the day, it's this guy who, you know, he was an educator. He was a public servant. He did some good things. And then this, whatever happened that triggered you know, this yeah, spiral in his mental health. Yeah, there's some break. Something happened that pushed him. Something you know. happened. Who knows? Yeah. And now, or maybe, who knows? Maybe he was always on his medication and he was fine. And then something happened where he decided not to take it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that part of his life. But um, it just really made me wonder, how do we fix this type of issue in our justice system? Right. We, we, you know, we have a a lot of really exciting elections coming up in Broward and one of them is state attorney and all the conversations we've had with state attorney candidates um, is that the system, the way it is, isn't just about, oh, this person shouldn't go to jail. This person needs to do something. We need to do something else. Right. Right. And having connections with organizations in the community that can step in. So we're not filling up jail cells with people who shouldn't be in jail. I mean, obviously he should have something on his record that said, yes, he assaulted someone X, Y, Z, like doesn't get away with it. But at the same time, like, how are we treating this person? And when you have an an organization that can step in and help with the mental health part of it. Right. um, And keep track of that person. They become their patient. It's a lot easier than it's better for that patient and better for society. If this person isn't sitting in jail and then it's just released, like not our problem anymore. Right. And it is your problem because he's going to keep coming back in front of you over and over again. And, and I think mental health, it needs to be on the forefront. Like we need to have things in place in our society. Yeah. To help people. Well, you know, I have a lot of hope. So it's very similar across the country. I know that there are a lot of really progressive uh, state attorneys or district attorneys, wherever you live, um, that are doing these kinds of things. I think Philadelphia has a really progressive one. But the way that when they run on all of these issues, it is about helping the mental health more than just like stacking up the jails. Right. So the candidates that we've talked to here in Broward, I'm I'm very hopeful that the changes will come because we've had the same state attorney for 43 years, who's not very progressive and doesn't look at crimes and um, punishment the way that he should in this day and age. Right. So I'm excited to see who's going to step in and, oh, and make those too. changes. And maybe we can be an example for how it should be across the state. Oh, that would be so incredibly lovely. I know. <laughs> Before we leave Nevada, though, I do want to give a shout out to my family that lives there. Melanie, who's one of our supporters. Oh. She's a new mom. Our Patreon. Yes, she's a new mommy. <laughs> and uh, so congratulations on your beautiful baby. He's, he's so amazing and cute and lovely. Lovely. Oh, I miss a little baby. <laughs> I know. I am jealous. I am jealous of this beginning stage of yeah. her being a mom. So congratulations to her and thank you for supporting it's us. so lovely. And um, last episode, we started this new thing where we put the, um, so episode 25 has a clip to 26 yeah. yeah so um so yeah so we're doing 27 so it was episode 25 puts a teaser for 26 so that idea came from my brother-in-law colin who listens uh and always gives me feedback and good uh good ideas Yay. for the podcast and so that was his idea and tina and i loved it so we, yes. we started doing it we hope you guys 
uh, like it too. And so thank you to Colin for giving me that idea and for listening and being supportive. Aww. Yeah. Yay. So, you know, short and sweet this episode. Yes. Although it's so funny because my we record this at my house and my family, my son will walk in at least twice to get chips out of the refrigerator behind <laughs> us. So we have to pause. And so I have to edit Aww. that out. And my husband just came home and was talking to it. Like just stood here as it's recording for like 15 <laughs> minutes. And I'm like, well, I guess we're going to have to edit all this out. So uh, maybe one day we'll just put all the clips together. I had an idea when I re- when I edit you go, oh, oh, God, oh, no. Like, there's so many times in the story where you do that. I thought it was so funny. Like, put all those together. Oh, my God. When you're like, oh, God, oh. Like, <laughs> it's so funny, your reactions to the stories. Oh. Mine usually involves cr- a lot of cursing, but. Yes, I love that, too. <laughs> all right, well, I hope you guys have a good week. We'll see you next week. Yes. All right, bye. Bye. If you want to see any photos or take a deeper dive into our stories, please follow the episode notes on our website, themuckpodcast.fireside.fm, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Muck Podcast. To support The Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level, Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for The Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty. Coming up next week on the Muck Podcast. Or if it's just a tarp lying there, people are not going to assume that there's a body under it. Oh, my God. Well, I would because I'm insane. (laughs) There's a body. Every time I see something like a rolled up carpet on the side of the road, I go, there's a body in that Uh, fucking carpet. I know. It's terrible. Look at just how Elvis is posed. Yeah. He's so cool. Yeah, he's he's really cool. I like, mean, he's, he's just like, look at me with the, the way the jacket's just on him. Yeah. Everything about him is... He's so handsome, too. 